Hi, I'm Ed. I'm John. And welcome to PAX, a podcast about history and empire. And today we're going to ask, is it ironic? <laughs> well, technically, it's, it's, it's peace ironic. The irony of peace. You know, it's um, peace ironic. I mean, it's sort of, the podcast is called PAX, as in PAX Romana, PAX Britannica, PAX Americana. We're going to yeah, talk about a few more PAX. PAX Mongolica. That's, Mongolica. that's on my list. PAX, you know. Pax East, Pax um, East, Pax West, um, Pax the the board game convention. No, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, oh my goodness. Uh, this... Um. First, I want to thank the um twenty two people who've listened to the podcasts between now and the time of recording. You guys are great. Yeah. Um. Please stick around. Thank you so much. Friends. Um. We yeah. want to we want to really sort of nail down what we're doing and and hopefully share it to, to more people and uh continue to to grow but we're all we're both really happy with um yeah i've been getting a few messages from people saying like oh you know i listened and enjoyed it and um and that made me you know yeah, I've got a super super, super happy yeah yeah please send us nice messages leave reviews <laughs> definitely recommend us to your friends um absolutely Again, Got the Al Murray endorsement. The Al Murray endorsement, very important. Shout out to friend of another podcast, Al Murray. <laughs> but, you know, if you are interested in Empire, have something to talk about with Empire, please drop us a message. We'd love to have you talk. Um, Absolutely. But for now, it's just us, and um, we're going to talk about peace. Peace. It's kind of ironic, peace, in the Empire podcast, because you'd, you'd imagine... Empire is something that uh, perhaps definitely comes after violence. But empire is, well, empire, imperium, the act of ruling somebody else, you know, if you are, is in itself an act of violence, especially if you're going to use, you know, Marxist socialist language around it, which eh, not really, but not on this podcast. Not on this podcast. This is quite clearly, obviously, uh, this podcast is endorsed by Senator McCarthy himself. <laughs> Exactly. There is no class warfare in this podcast. No theory. But one of the important justifications for Empire, both at the time and after its after the woods in historiography, is that empires create peace and enforce peace in violent parts of the world. And what this isn't really going to be a discussion of is, is that true? Because it's not... <laughs> but it's more, more what's more more interesting about it is how empires can create create a general sense of peace through violence. Yeah. Should we start with um I've got I you know, with the with the origins of of the word peace and so the word pax uh, specifically. Um and you you know you won't be surprised to hear that you know pax it, it is it is a latin word. It does come from uh, from the Romans, um, but as with most Roman things, it is based on a, uh, a Greek equivalent. So that, stealing everything, and that equivalent is called uh, Irene, who was uh, a personification of peace, created um, and featuring in sort of Hesiod's uh, work and days, um, sort of long, uh, long poem, which is it's an interesting read. Uh, but it, it really got pulled into the, the spotlight of the Roman Empire by um, Augustus, 
Augustus very much uh, in trying to craft a, to the extent that he can craft a narrative, you know, this is state capacity from 2000 years ago. There's not an awful lot he can really be credited with when it comes to building a sort of an imperial ideology. But he was able to dedicate um, some buildings, and the the biggest one of those is probably the Arapacus, which is the uh, the altar of peace, which was dedicated um, by the Senate to Augustus in about uh, nine BC. And on this altar, it featured it, it was very pious. Yeah, it combines Augustus's role as the Pontifex Maximus; he's the big priest in Rome, and. Uh, it combines that with his political role as at the head of the state, and it's basically celebrating both his piety and also his uh, the peace that he's brought to the Roman Empire by uh, ending a tumultuous period of civil wars and defeating uh, Queen Cleopatra. So in many senses, the concept of Pax Romana is A, inherently tied to Augustus's need to basically prove that he is better than what came before him. Yes. And also a sort of social exhaustion of the violence of the late Roman Republic. So the only Absolutely. reason that you have to be, you, that you end up with a situation where the Romans can say, Rome is an empire of peace, and within Rome there is peace, is because everyone is so exhausted. And I th- and I nearly think... a century of nearly constant political violence. Yeah. Uh, and, I, to have. and I think it's a, it's a Kool-Aid, uh, it seems that Romans were very willing to swallow, especially those in the political class, because of the exhaustion from the civil wars. The number of uh, senators had really not entirely dropped off, but a lot of the experienced ones who were who would have held office as consuls were certainly already dead. And so we, you sort of, you have this uh, this sort of vibe where everyone is sort of very tired of constant civil war. No one really has uh, lots of political experience. And so people are probably quite happy to see uh, this big strong man, this thug Augustus, uh, rise to the top of the the political food chain and then basically squat there. Uh, (laughs) That's essentially what the early emperors are, basically. It's a bunch of thugs who force their way to the top, basically waiting, all waiting for the clock to run down before the Senate takes over. Yes. Well, that's because uh, their powers are nominally granted by the Senate. So, but you you don't have to keep the Senate uh, happy. You know, Tiberius, uh, when he becomes emperor after Augustus's death, almost immediately changes uh, some of the rules. So, uh, and he gets called stingy for it because it used to be uh, that Augustus would at least let some senators pretend, you know, that they're, that they're doing these things. And, and Tiberius is like, well, I think we should change it from generally sort of putting on these circuses and games to just like doing things for the emperor because that's your job. Uh, and what this means is that the, the number of public feasts, public games, uh, public, basically everything in Rome drops off a cliff as soon as Tiberius uh, becomes emperor and everyone calls him very stingy because of it. Basically, they want to spend the fucking yeah. money. Yeah. And I mean, Tacitus is sort of, is also someone that's quite incisive on this. He says that people are very happy to sort of get drunk off the, and this quotes, sweetness of peace. And um, people were very willing to throw themselves um, into 
this sort of narrative uh, because, you know, it didn't only benefit uh, their own position, but there was this sort of like um, public trauma about the previous, uh, you know, 15, 20 years and the the, the turmoil that was the uh, the end of the Roman Republic. But I mean, Pax, Pax and Peace, you know, it, it does stick around. It does become a, an important cult. Um, and just going back to the Arapakis, the the freezes. If you if you get an opportunity to you know look this up, if you look at the freezes, a lot of them are, are religious, and obviously involving Pax, the personification of peace. But then what you also have is a, a freeze dedicated to the emperor's family. So you have Augustus and his wife, his sister. Uh, I think Marcus Agrippa's in there, and his his. Uh, I think how many how many children did he have? I think four, and then uh, Tiberius uh, <clears throat> Augustus's uh, adopted um, sons are in there too, and so what what he's doing is he's tying him and his family, especially to this narrative of of peace that has been delivered to the uh, to the Roman Empire, and it also cements Pax as a an important cult in the Roman Empire, one that can be brought back up. Uh, when it's uh, convenient for it's, it's, for other emperors, it's interesting that there is doesn't seem to be a conflict between this concept of Pax and the inherently martial element of the Roman Empire. You know, Augustus is a leader who comes to power through force. Every every Roman emperor, the, the sort of the Augustan group, <clears throat> is a yeah. military veteran. You know, the, the year of the four emperors is just a bunch of local generals and colonels basically bodging it, killing each other till some till Vespasian basically gives up and takes over. Yeah. I mean, and that's and it, it's Vespasian who dedicates the the second big monument to peace, which is the the Temple of Peace, uh which was completed in 75 uh AD. And it like, <laughs> sorry. So there's no there's no one in Rome who's like we there is a conflict between this concept of peace and the fact that we are constantly at war. No, not particularly. I mean, uh, I think Pax, Pax Romana is something that gets remarked upon a couple times by um, ancient commentators, but no one, because the, the Romans are the victors and the Romans are the literate society that do all the writing, there really isn't much in the way of direct reflection on that, nor is there any um, any sort of uh, remorse in in their actions or in in uh, in going to war. There is a, a change in style of warfare, if you could call it that, which sort of happens around the turn of uh, oh, uh, I'd say probably in the somewhere in the midst of the the five good emperors, where it, the the emphasis very much changes from. Wars of conquest to wars of uh, of defense, uh, defensive wars where you're trying to throw back various migrations and invasions. Uh, wars and I of guess maintenance in many ways. Yeah, so you sort of switch from the offense to the defense, and uh, so you, that's like um, uh, Marcus Aurelius's German wars, where he's off in Germany on campaign for years and years and years, just constantly fighting the same battle not making much ground, just grinding each other down, basically. But then, And then you compare that to the early Principate, where um, 
you know, Tiberius fought, fought and won lots of bat- similar battles, but he was crossing the Rhine quite regularly to go into Germany and, and do battle. And then obviously Claudius's invasion of Britain is the big, uh, the big new thing. Um, and then you go, you got Trajan's wars in Dacia and his wars in, uh, in the East against Parthia. So there are so many wars going on right now. That's like, it's kind of, it's kind of crazy that in the midst of all this, Vespasian is able to dedicate this temple to peace. And then you know what he fills it with? All the war goods? All the treasure from the Temple of Jerusalem when he... Oh! <laughs> oh! When, and, oh no. and, and everything else from the Siege of Jerusalem. So, you know, it's really dedicated to peace. And uh, it's quite... It, 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 it also... It's such a weird idea for a building to have a temple to peace so there is a a real importance to the building so it's a big discontinuity because the place where i i think i've got this right the place where the temple of peace is used to be the place where there was a big fuck off statue of nero which so there's a big building with a big statue of nero in it and they knocked it down and they built the temple of peace on top of it so is it perhaps that the peace they're talking about is civil peace in Rome. Yes, I think that is think what the right. Pax Romana is about. It is not. It is still a hangover, even by the time the five emperors into the into the beginning of the second century AD. It is about the political hangover and headache and paranoia of the instability of the Roman Republic. Yes, I say so. Frightened of things like the Latin Wars and whatever the fuck Marius had going on, <laughs> and the the the, the Ga- and the Gracchi and the Gracchi brothers. I forgot. Obviously, they're still terrified. This period where Roman society nearly destroyed itself because it was not at peace with its own. With it was not at peace with itself. Yeah. So in that way, the Pax Romana is not a justification. Is a not a justification for empire. It's a justification for the imperial system, for the authoritarian system of government. Yeah. yeah. And I think you, just a... you get that mirrored uh, later on with like the Pax Mongolica, where th- what what they really mean is that actually we have this big, with this one very just large what empire. You mean by Pax Mongolica. You're talking the about Pax, the, the Mongols, yeah. So Genghis Khan, so the 13th century, uh, basically the whole of the Eurasian steppe. Yeah. is unified under one one political entity uh, that that does eventually split into two or three but they're vaguely the same. Well, and what yeah. it does is it connects people from China to the Black Sea. Yeah. And it basically creates a sort of economic and cultural efflorescence and uh, it leads to changes in Europe. So for instance, uh, Venice and Genoa are very competitive over shipping grain from the Black Sea to Italy uh, and obviously eventually that that shipment of grain will bring the the Black Death to Europe. Who amongst us hasn't accidentally killed third of the population of Europe? Who amongst us? If I know. I did a face. That's great for a podcast. It's great for a podcast. <laughs> Always great. For, this is a great visual. Yeah. Burning space. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing about the Mongols is that un, they're not particularly interested. In instituting new forms of in any in, in many senses, it is the strongest form of that kind of imperial peace 
Mm. In that you do, nobody in, you don't fight each other in the Mongol Empire because we will kill you. You do what we say. You pay us your taxes and you fuck off. Yeah, because the the Mongols actually are very. Uh, they won't. You know, if you resist, they'll they'll kill you. But, but not, they they will integrate you. You know, Genghis Khan's uh, sort of war court mm. is full of. Um, it's is incredibly multicultural, and it's because the the Mongols are. Uh, uh, have this immense sort of propensity to just subsume all these uh, various cultures they come into contact with and inevitably defeat in battle. But also the Mongol political elite is deeply uninterested in the bureaucracy of running a country. That's true. They, they don't really want, they want to, they want the power and the money and they want to be the, the rulers, the Khans of all Eurasia, but they're not particularly interested in sitting down and doing all the minutiae of running a country. In many I mean, ways, that's why it fractures because you can't maintain an empire that large. You know, the, yeah. when, the when most the famous babies... Mongol yeah, conquest is when they basically accidentally become emperors of China. Yeah, because I mean that, that, view... that comes first. That's yeah. like I mean, if anything, that is the exemplification oh. of Pax Mongolia, <clears throat> which is that the Mongols don't want to be. They are the. China's falling apart, and that is vi- a violent threat to Mongol society, to the Mongol political system. So you go in and impose peace by becoming the emperor of China, which was probably not the plan. <laughs> yeah, because I think they they captured the emperor, or at least they, they did capture the uh, the empress and a lot of the... The, the court, I, yes. Yeah. I think it's... Is it the Tang dynasty that falls apart? Oh, man. I wish I knew more. See, if you know anything about Mongolia... Or about Chinese history, actually. Chinese history, please, especially. Please come, come talk to us. Because I'd love to talk about the Chinese Empire, but um, I don't, don't know anything about it, and I'm not an expert. But if you are, please come talk to us, because we'd love it. Yeah. And we don't really want to talk out of our asses. <laughs> but it's... What's interesting to me about what you're saying is that essentially about Rome, that there's no quest... They're not justifying imperial governance because they think they are the best, they, they cause peace. Mm. Whereas you look at the 19, 19th century Britain, the over-justification by the end of the century for the British Empire is that we can impose peace. Like sort of world, world police type. Uh... Yeah, gendarme. Sort of gendarmerie, yes. Um. I'm just trying to find where this quote is from. Yeah, I've got a quote here, mid-19th century, from an explorer called Sir Francis Young Husband, which is a great Victorian name. (laughs) But he justified the British place in India was inevitable. So long as we do not hold India simply from pure pride of possession, but with a strong faith that it is our appointed task in the development of mankind to preserve peace where we have found anarchy, to enforce the eternal principles of justice, and to quicken into new life those highly cultured peoples who for long centuries have been numbed in sleep. Hmm. Is, it, is there a bit of white man's burden uh, ringing around there? Oh, yeah. It was the, the, whole, the whole bell is made of white man's burden when you ring it. But it's <laughs> that when you look at the... There's a long, so this, that is from an article by Peter, Peter J. Kane on the mission to civilize and essentially the moral argument for empire. Mm. And that moral argument that basically Britain's history up to the imperial period 
justifies his ability to govern morally. It's essentially that Britain, the British people understand the balance between more order and liberty better than anybody else. So they are the best place to make, they're the best place to understand how to keep that balance, to maintain peace. I know one side of that may have, they consider, you know, despotism, whether it's it, they are talking about Napoleon or the Mughal emperor. But at the other end is democracy. You know, they consider democracy to be antithetical to peace. Are they, are they being informed by, by the Greeks, do you think, when they say something like that? Oh, almost, almost certainly. You know, the, this idea of ordered liberty is built on reinterpretations of Greek philosophy. I mean, it all comes out of, um, what's his name? Uh, Plato, Aristotle. Plato, Aristotle. Think of the early 18th century philosopher, the, you know, the uh, famous life, liberty and property. I want to say John something. Oh, oh, I've no idea. <laughs> 18th century philosopher. Not Milton, that's the... Oh, not, not Kant or anything like that. No. Life, mm. liberty. It's good. I'm looking it up because we do that now. We do that. John we'll Locke. John Locke. Oh, Lockean, yes. And Hobbesian. Mm. Massive nutter. <laughs> <laughs> but was but yeah, all that quality. Yeah. Mm. That's his, that whole, the whole theory of British government is around this idea of you need of that the British are the best place to govern because they can maintain peace and you need to maintain peace to maintain a policy of slow and moral improvement, which is what, that's the liberal justification for empire, is that the empire can maintain peace that will allow societies to grow. And I mean, the most obvious example of this is Africa. And, you know, if you want an example as often cited even now, is that the British Empire goes into Africa to maintain peace and prevent the expansion and prevent the slave trade. Because mm. the slave trade is creating a lot of violence in Africa. But the, the violence in Africa the slave trade causes is because of the um, existing European empires. Yeah. And uh, is it born from a... Uh, is, is the Pax Britannica like uh, two halves, sort of where, where one side uh, is sort of immediately post-conquest where people are um it's sort of a rush to maximize sort of the economic um benefits of of having a large extractive empire and then the second half is sort of pumping the brakes and and moralizing about well actually now that we're here you know let's do let's say xyz about about our position and and what we why why it why it is that that this has sort of um happened to us or been perpetrated by us yeah, I mean, there's this prop. The my general theory, and it's sort of backed by people like C. A. Bailey and others, is that the British Empire did not intend to be the globally dominant power in 1850. Oh, you see, there's a <laughs> there's a there's a big parallel with the the Roman Empire. Rome, yes, which well. is probably, but Britain at the end of the Napoleonic Wars finds itself the hegemonic power in India. The hegemonic power of the Caribbean, the hegemonic power in the Mediterranean, which is a massive surprise to them, and the hegemonic, the over the complete master of the seas. Mm. You know, for most of the 18th century, Britain's naval power can be challenged internationally by the French, the Dutch, and the Spanish across the globe. You know, the 
arguably, and the decent argument, the American War for Independence is lost because the Spanish, Dutch, and French navies essentially making it impossible for Britain to sustain an, an international war. You know, the largest and the longest and most violent battle of the American War of Independence is the Siege of Gibraltar, which is an inherently imperial battle. <laughs> yeah. Imperial war. It's like it is the Spanish and the French trying to take off the British, the most important linchpin of the British Empire, Gibraltar. Yeah. And they fail. But on the other hand, the, the, the fact the French Navy and the Spanish Navy, the French Navy especially, prevents the relief of Cornwallis at Yorktown is why the British land campaign in North America ends. But it is post-Trafalgar, there is no, and realistically post the War of 1812, there is no challenge to the, British, the ability of the Royal Navy to act around the world, which means that there is no imperial challenger to Britain between 1815 and the Conference of Berlin. It's, you know, Britain can go where it wants in the world and dictate policy, and that is the Pax Britannica. The Pax Britannica is that a you don't piss off the British because they will ruin your entire trade network. And they can, but they don't. Britain does not go into the Revolutionary Wars intending to become a global hedge. It's, it's about, just how the cards fall that way for them. Yeah, well, they're, they're, playing another, they're playing another part of what is sometimes referred to as the stately quadrile, which is that you move your, you like a dance, like a, a formal dance, you move your alliances around Europe to make sure the balance of power maintains itself, right? Yeah. And as much as there is a massive ideological justification to going war with revolutionary France, it, it is as much about the fact that France cannot be allowed to become a hegemon in Europe. Okay. And so that's what begins the war and, and cements yeah. uh, Britain's hegemony. There are imperial ambitions. I'm not that... You know, I've, there's some really decent arguments made about Britain's imperial ambitions in the Caribbean, and that's why they get so invested in the Haitian Revolution and seizing French islands. But they don't, I don't think they intend a situation where the British Empire is the main force, is hegemonic in the Mediterranean, you know, Gibraltar, Malta, the Ionian Islands, massive, Menorca, things like that. They don't intend a situation where Britain is now... The, a government in South Africa, they don't intend that. You go into South Africa because then you control the Cape and suddenly mm. you're there forever and you have to deal with the Boers. And you're and embroiled local... in all these local conflicts suddenly. I mean, that's quite interesting, especially the, the balance of power is, is sort of the prime motivator for, for sort of setting all these things in, in motion. Because that, that reminds me of the, the Peloponnesian War mm-hmm. between Athens and, and Sparta. Which is essentially what Thucydides tries to tell us is 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 started for the same reason where Athens and Sparta are these two competing uh, alliances slash empires, and you know Sparta is afraid of of Athens' growth essentially, and therefore selects uh, you know it's X Y and Z reasons to start a war with Athens and says that's good enough. But actually, what they want to do is to maintain the balance of power and uh, prevent the further expansion of Athens' empire. And what that leads to is a, a 30-year-long devastating war, uh, after, at the end of which, obviously, Athens uh, loses. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not permanent uh, destruction. They, you know, within the next, I'd say, sort of 30 years, Athens is back to or even stronger than the position it was in uh, before with significantly less resources at its hands. Yeah, I mean, that's 
that in many ways it's a bit like the end of the Polonic Wars. You have the Congress of Vienna, and they deliver out of the Congress of Vienna does not come a crippled, defeated France. France re-emerges as a player in the concert of Europe. A reactionary one at first, but then eventually a liberal one, a republican one, an imperial one, and whatever the fuck the Third Republic was. <laughs> Do you think um, there's something to be said in the fact that all these all these other empires that we're we're talking about or will talk about, so the Pax Britannica, you know, the the Pax Mongolica, and the Pax Americana, which we'll talk about later. Do you, is there something to be said for the fact that all of these empires are not, uh, in a sense, European empires? They are empires by European states, but they are not in Europe. Whereas the Roman Empire is a European empire in a in a literal sense, in that it, the the empire subsumes, you know, vast amounts of the continent of Europe and then also North Africa and a, and a bit of uh, the Middle East and Asia Minor. But it is it's a land empire in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Um, is that is that something unique? Well, I, I mean, my the thing about when people talk about European empires is what they're really less talking about, in my view, is continental. It's a concept of an empire ruling over the most developed part of the known world, right? Mm. I mean, and that is an inherently difficult thing to maintain. You know, just ask the Germans. Yeah, or Napoleon. Or Napoleon. It's difficult because people. There's power, there's influence, there's money, there's a vested interest in everybody being independent, and people are aware of that. The Romans do achieve that. They maintain total hegemony over the known of the Mediterranean, which is the center of the world. You know, they they make it they make they have the Mara Nostra. Yeah. And I think the only European you have the you if you want a European empire that can maintain control over European land and sustain it for a large period of time, you are looking at one option. Do you know who I'm talking about? No, go on. The Austrian Empire. The Habsburgs. (laughs) There is no function... The the Austrian Empire maintains control over Central and Eastern Europe, the borderlands between Europe and Asia, during the rise and ascent of nationalism, mass politics, socialism and communism and fascism, well, not fascism, all the way until 1918. Mm. And I've read a lot around and I still have no idea how they did it. <laughs> but would you that know, be a, a Pax... Uh... A Pax Habsburgius. It <laughs> doesn't really ring a roll off the tongue as well. A, a, hey. A Pax Josephus, a yes. Pax Josephus, yeah, because it is. This okay. is a Pax Franzi Franz Joseph. Because one of the general arguments is that the only thing that holds the Austrian Empire together is the fact they all have the same monarch, who were yeah. respects. That's interesting because, also, like, it's, so it's like a, a long period of of peace in sort of Central and Eastern Europe because of the the surprising stability of the of the Austrian Empire because then they say about the Roman Empire that uh you know the you know the the 200 years or so of uh, relative stability in the in the Roman Empire is like the longest period of peace on continental Europe essentially yes yeah yes it is but it's that point I mean it, 
it's this point as well is that we that's peace but is it peace you know the mm. us that borderland the, the borderland region between you know prussia all the way down to greece the border between eastern europe and russian europe european russia yeah you know there are there are three horrible revolt polish rebellions which are all really violent the mm. the Revolution of 1848 lead to a Hungarian revolution and the Hungarian War of Independence. You know, there's massive civil strife and violence in the Balkans across the entire 19th century. You know, the Russians and the Ottomans get are loggerheads, you know, the loggerheads constantly. I mean, we in Britain only really know talk about the Crimean War, about the British involvement, but it war starts because the Russians are attempting to extend their imperium into southern Europe. They're after Constantinople and they're after hegemony over the Ottoman Empire. And, you know, then you have the Eastern crisis in the 1870s where the Russians have another go at it. The British get involved once again to maintain the balance of power. But that is unbelievably violent. Mm. And even when the Austrian Empire is not at war, it is maintained, it, empire there is still maintained by a mass military presence. And it's the, obviously, I, I think this is the elephant in the room, is that the the military is the most like the most important part of an empire and yet we're talking about peace as like this sort of present or um as this uh talking about it's like it's peace peace enforced by hegemony by a, a superior military power yeah it's at the end of the empires are about peace but that peace is maintained by the soldier i i the, guess the, the, going back to go back to augustus and the emperors I, I suppose that um so the emperor it, just to briefly be sidetracked by how the how the how the principate works augustus is in the senate you know he's voted princeps he is the 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 you know the leading man of the state but the Senate is still allowed to do its business. It's allowed to still hold elections, uh, elect people, have a cursus honorum, uh, give people political careers, and even send them out to govern provinces. But, and those provinces sometimes have soldiers attached to them. But the rest of the provinces, usually the provinces which are on the fringes of the empire, where you have to maintain a, a, a border in sort of a very loose definition of the word they still involve they that that's where the majority of the army is and those are imperial provinces so those are run specifically by uh by the emperor and his legates and what that means is that the emperor is nominally the head of the senate although he doesn't get involved in any senate business but what he actually does where he does have power is that he is the head of the army and that's where his real power comes from, where Augustus is fine sort of role-playing and playing down his personal glory or, you know, his personal uh, or his ego and things like that when he's in the Senate. But he's only happy to do that because he, he has the control of the army. If you have control of the army, you're in control of the state and you can enforce your will uh, that way. And so I, I think that's interesting because what you have there is a a direct link between 
emperor and army, and then also emperor and peace. Because the emperor is propagating the cult of peace, but the, the emperor is also the head of the army. And it's I mean, oh. an interesting sort of combination of roles, but it's a combination of roles that produces in in sort of, um, if, if in terms, and this is what a, a quote Edward given here, and he said, this is, he's talking about uh, the Pax uh, Romana. And he said that if a man were called to fix the period in the history of the world during which the condition of the human race was most happy and prosperous, he would without hesitation, although I'm sure people would hesitate now, name that which elapsed from the death of Domitian to the accession of Commodus. And that's uh, basically 96 AD to 180 AD. Uh, which sort of is post-Principate. Well, no, it's not post-Principate, but it's post-Julio-Claudians uh, up to um, the death of Marcus Aurelius. Um, and so that's basically the, the system that was maintained by that. And it produced, um, you know, uh, these, I think lots of Roman historians would agree that that period of, of Roman history is peak Roman Empire both in terms of obviously the extent of its territory under Trajan, um, but also in terms of uh, population, its demography, uh, economic growth, because um, it's before all these terrible sort of calamities that happen in the in the third century, the, the, the plagues, the economic depression, the spiraling inflation, all, all of that. And so it's sort of, yeah, uh, and and it is it is a good it is a good quote, but it intrigues me because it's one thing that's painfully clear to me is that Gibbon is already retroactively trying to justify the British Empire because he's right. What's that? Is that from Decline and Fall? Yeah, which is it's always earlier than you think. Seventeen seventy six. Oh, great year! Love that year. Great year. Volume one in 1776. Yeah, which Gibbon is writing about is is complaining about the lack of civil virtue. Yeah. He's basically arguing that that is his thesis. Writing a Jordan Peterson, we've all lost our we've all become weak and unsafe. He's like, if you know we all if... love women too much and wear makeup. <laughs> I mean that's that's literally what people like Gibbon. And Burke and crap are arguing. So basically, we've all become flopsy. We've all become flopsy Latins who wear makeup and do our hair in macaroni yeah. and go to masquerade balls dressed in. If if, if Elagabalus, you know, if he tidied up his room and uh, <laughs> and stopped prostituting himself, you know, maybe maybe we'd still have the Roman Empire today. Yeah, if, that, that's the that, thesis. If that Prince Regent stopped embracing woke liberal Catholic mistresses, right, right, we wouldn't be in this place. That's what he's saying. But that is yeah. interesting because, yeah, Gibbon is writing about a world where you have royal bulls, where members of the aristocracy are cross-dressing, mm. and where, you know, homosexuality might not be considered allowed, but it is certainly, it might not be considered okay and normalised, but it is certainly not considered... It's not legislated against. It's not legislated against, and it's not... Until... Later, it's not, it's not sensationally immoralized. It's certainly considered immoral, but it's mm. certainly not. It's not the kind of. It's not. It's yeah. not normal. You know what I'm saying? It's not normal, and it's not accepted. 
but and it's certainly on the hard side of it, but it's not we're not quite in that sort of Victorian family values thing. Mm. But Gibbon is still complaining about what he considers a moral degeneracy of society. I mean, the Georgians are by modern standards pretty wild. They there's nothing the Georgian audience loves more than a cartoon with a penis in it. I mean, you even know, if there's no need, the cartoon that's, have a that's penis. true, even today, John. Though, I mean, come on, no, but like it's a political, it's like it's a cartoon about politics. Why is there a penis? Why does, why does the Duchess of Devonshire have her tits out? What, why, <laughs> guys, why just go? You, what <laughs> there are other things to draw. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least it's not like Ben Garrison. He's not like labeled it like penis. Oh no, they're all labeled worse. Oh no, no, they're not as bad as Ben Garrison, and they have all got better titles. Like <laughs> actually, Victorian cartoons all have great titles. Like there's one from the 1860s that's called "Dish the Wigs," and it's just Disraeli hold, like lifting the tray, lifting the cover off a tray with like all the all the wig leaders on it because he's like, ah, he's dished the wigs because he got the reform act through. Whoa. And then he lost the election <laughs> <laughs> immediately. It's like there's nothing funnier than the second side of the second reform act because Disraeli's basically goes, the only way for the Tories to win is to pass the reform act themselves, and then people vote for us. And he convinces all of the Tory grandees to back it, and mm. then immediately loses the election to the Liberals because <laughs> <laughs> everybody because nobody fucking likes the Tories. <laughs> God. Now, John, if we're talking modern parallels, oh, well, I, I meant as in like nobody likes the Tories. That's what nobody I that, that was my that was my modern parallel. Ah, ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. <laughs> but do you do you think we're living in a Pax Americana right now? I, if I was to define a Pax Americana, I would define it as the period between. The fall of the Berlin Wall and the election of Donald Trump. Ooh. Right. You might push it to it depends on how the next five or six years go to push it on if I was a historian. But mm. like you look at the Balkan, the period across the, the wars in the Balkans and then the war on terror, they have been unbelievably defined by. American military action, American military presence, and the American military alliance, and the fact that the United States is the only country in the world which can project power to every corner of the globe. Yeah, and do you think that in a in in the modern world is the marker of a global superpower or a as a hegemonic uh, country is its ability to project power all around the world? Well, it's it depends on your type of power. I think the United States can project. If we're going to define it in terms of being able to protect military and economic power, we have lived in a Pax Americana since the end of the Second World War. If yeah. anything, we lived in a Pax Americana since the Atlantic Charter of 1941. Because that, that is where I, uh, <clears throat> that is where most people sort of started off is the end of the Second World War. Second World War, yeah. If any, if you go there, I think we're in a moment of a decline of the Pax Americana because we're now at a point where American the American dollar dominance is competing with the Chinese yen in mm. imperial battlegrounds in Africa and Southeast Asia and Australia and even Britain. You know, yeah. if we're going to be fair, mm. we are an imperial battleground between America and China. Yeah. I know which one's winning because <laughs> Huawei aren't building all our 5G masks I'm, anymore. Yeah. And, you know, 
Ukraine, Ukraine is itself an imperial battleground between Russia's last fled, flailing attempt to maintain hegemony over European Russia, over the Europe, mm-hmm. and America. You know, I'm not, I'm not some form of fucking stop the war type. But if we're going to be blunt, it is a frontier between a Pax Americana and a Russian reassertion of authoritarianism. But you know, then again. There is a substantial difference between international democracy as a hegemony yeah. and the Pax Americana, you know. I think that's the complicated bit, which is the the post-1991 liberal order and the Pax Americana should be considered differences. Yeah. And do you think... I think they're complementary in a way that, say, the Pax Britannica and the concept of Europe were complementary. So it's how like um globalization and and uh sort of the spreading of of democracy are sort of two parts, two sides to the same to the same coin as yeah, part I mean, of the sort of the in the people, armory of of the US. Yeah. People tie globalization to America, but the world is the world is reasonably globalized by 1945, right? Yeah. Would like, you in 1945 would you credit rural, there are rural it, Kenyans? driving ambulances in a British army through Burma, right? In 1945, there are, you know, they're pulling uranium out of the ground in Congo to build nuclear weapons to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So would you push the beginning of globalization back to the British Empire? And this is a leading question because I I think you can apply it to the Roman Empire. <laughs> it is a leading question. No, well, it's, you, once again, globalization, uh, you, def- you have to define what the globe is, right? Mm. If you define the globe as the geographic the whole thing world, then it is a British Empire. Mm-hmm. It is a British Empire being able to it is the fact that the Pax Britannica allows British Empire, the Royal Navy especially, to explore the four corners of the earth and connect the world with trade routes and sea lanes and telegraph wires. Mm. If one is talking about the known world yeah. To the European. Or the geographical extremities of a certain continent. It's, and it's like yeah. if you're taking into like uh, taking like technology and stuff into account. I mean, here's the point. The you're Roman, being reasonable. A Roman politician, well-informed one, in, mm. nine, eight, in the second century AD, is reasonably aware, A, of the existence of sub-Saharan kingdoms. Yes. B, the existence of China, of India and mm-hmm. see the existence of Chinese emp- the Chinese empires. Yes. They might not know what's Brief. there, but they're reasonably aware that though there are people of peer-level power in those three regions. Yeah. That can be traded with and interacted with. Is the average Roman on the street aware? That's the other point. Because is globalization merely imperial links? Or is mm. it or is globalization the fact that the existence of an international social social politic, you know. I think globalization, it has to feel like the world is getting smaller. The Romans definitely, yeah, if we're gonna define which it, I that's think if the Romans do. Which I which yes, I think it feels like far off places and, and extremities feel closer. Um, and that's you know, because of could be because people are building infrastructure or yeah. Uh, and and things like that but it's also to do with your 
you know, your your material culture. Well, in many you know. ways, then you could consider this is a question I really love to talk about. Is the is Christendom a form of empire? Ooh, like the church. Yeah, because the Catholic Church keeps the world incredibly connected in the medieval period. But yeah, yes. like if you are let's but bring back to that conversation, if you are a North Britain in the 60s AD, the world feels smaller to you than your father's world. Because your father might have met a ghoul. Might have met a ghoul. Yeah. Or a Belgian. Or perhaps a German. You, however, have met a Roman. And that Roman might be from Tunisia or Libya or Egypt. If he's a soldier, he's more than likely from that part of the world, isn't he? Yeah. You are, as we talked about last week, you are engaging with people who are worshipping Parthian gods or you know you might be going to a market and seeing a medallion with an Indian coin on it yeah or, you don't know yeah it's like globalization is like the the interaction between your very local <clears throat> your very local customs and then the incorporation of global in like big air quotes because we're not not literally global yeah. sort of global materials so for instance um in gaul and in britain there is sort of uh the uh sort of there are pot potlatch um which is like ceremonial feasts put on by big chiefs and they obviously involve very specific foodstuffs and vessels for eating and consuming and drinking but the vessels and the food, you know, potlatch could, you know, does remain the same. Potlatch is the local custom, mm. but the things they're eating and the things they're eating them out of become subject to change. So wine is a massive export from the Roman world to um, Iron Age, Northwest Europe. Humongous amounts of wine get sent there because they love wine. So the things you're drinking in your traditional ceremony are suddenly Romanized, another humongous, huge, humongous air quotes around Romanized. That's not a great word. But they, you know, you're involving these um these foods. And then your your vessels change from, you know, your Iron Age um uh, hand spun uh pots to these better quality wheel spun wares from Italy or especially in in Britain. Samian ware, like almost all of it comes from France. So that has to be transported across the English Channel through. It's not a particularly safe place. <laughs> yes. And through, um, you know, there has to be some pre existing lines of, of trade and communication for these vessels to run across. And then they enter into these, uh, these British um, households. And what that represents is, you know, this is a very local. Um, local customs and practices being changed by uh, a sort of a global power, the Roman Empire, reaching in, establishing, you know, sort of vague political control. But it's what comes after that. It's the the new material culture. It's the new food. It's different ways of living your life. I mean, the obvious counterpoint to that to look at is the interaction between the indigenous populations in North America and the emergent European empires. You know, they're... Mm. Within 50, 60 years, they're using muskets, they're 
building more horses. European style buildings, horses, very important. Humongous one. horses. You know, horses revolutionized the way that um some some North American uh tribes and chiefs it completely changes the way they interact with the land as well. Absolutely, because it's you know, it's the the Sioux Indians do not interact with the land the way they do before and after the horse. Mm. Completely different revolutionized is how they work. The in, the simple desires of the Europeans, not even their conquest, completely changes the economies of these people because suddenly, you know, the beaver is not a particularly important animal yeah. in pre-Columbian... Not so many top hats going around. Yeah. But... but the moment that the Europeans arrive, we're like, we want your beavers, give us all your beavers, we will do anything for your beavers. <laughs> I've tried that in the club, John, it doesn't work. <laughs> it took me 30 seconds to be like, oh, fuck, what have I done? <laughs> but they become really, that changes their economies massively. And the other one, obviously, is they don't have money. They don't have currency. They have pseudo-currency, pseudo-currential elements. Mm. But they don't have coinage. They don't have an equivalent to coinage. Is that it, current, a currency-based economy is entirely alien to much of North America. I mean, the sub, the... Latin America, so, you know, the Incas, the Aztecs, the Peruvian societies have currencies. Yeah, so but they, they are sorry to be very evolutionist on very this. Wiggish. Yes, but they, uh, an evolutionary, an, an evolutionary historian, you know, big, you know, Yuval, uh, what's his name, from the Sapiens, yeah. would say, well, you know, a lot of the time currency doesn't appear until people start settling down and farming. And that's yeah. why you know, the, the Aztecs Inca would have something that, that looks vaguely similar to money is because they're, you know, they're farming maize and things like that, I think. I think. I really, this is not my area. Whereas a lot, like, a lot of North America is people are pastoralists, people herding bison, or they are sort of gatherers. So I know in, in California, there's a, there are two groups that are that um, do fish, they do fishing, and there are others that collect acorns. Basically, that's their subsistences. You know, yeah. you... and it's the, you know the Aztecs when the conquistadors arrive in Mexico, the Aztec political society and economic society is reasonably recognizable to them. I mean, the I mean, they they I think um, they talk about walking into these Aztec cities, and they're like, oh, I recognize this. That's a big administrative building. Oh, that must be a temple. Oh, that's a town square. Yeah, that sort of stuff. Whereas, you know, I mean, the incredibly depressing one is we have no idea what the pre the civil the city civilizations of the Midwest of America were like. Really, and there's a lot of recent, modern research being done because somebody gave them all smallpox and then bulldozed their ruins because they thought it was just a mound. Yeah. So that's that is that that's a like um. That's like a biological barrier between, um, but also, you know, there's like a fundamental difference between Europeans arriving in the Americas and their intentions and what they're going to do between what the Romans do when they arrive in Britain. But because it's like a, a virgin soil uh, outbreak, it is devastating in, in a way that, you know, Northwest Europe, Iron Age Northwest Europe was reasonably 
uh, connected. You know, th- there's evidence of and technologically of advanced Britain, Britain and the mainland always trading. You know, Britain is one of the biggest, or one of the what's well, thought to be one of the most important sources of tin in yeah, Europe. The Greeks don't the Greeks yeah. go? They do the long haul round the round I mean, the Bay of Biscay to get um, British tin. Yeah, and tin tin obviously goes into bronze and. So you can't have age. a Bronze Age without sources of tin, which means that you know places like Britain need to be connected to, uh, you know, the the Mesopotamia somehow. So if you have those links already in place, you're not going to produce a similar situation where the disease pools of these two different places um, spill over and cause mass death in the same way. But it is also that existing connection builds a political connection, the social connection, which means that. The imposition of a new political order and a, a Pax Romana to circle back mm. is easier. Yes, absolutely. Because you don't have to, because there is a, you aren't really going out to usurp and replace a political order. You can just go meet the new boss, same as the old boss, and you only have to get rid of the old guy, the existing rulers, if they fight back. Yeah. And that is. And also, you're fighting a non, a sort of in a very, in a, if we're talking definitions, you're sort of fighting a non-state enemy. So it's not a recognizable state um, in in, pre, in pre-conquest Britain. I mean, it, interestingly, um, there is sort of like a, a periphery. This is, uh, I've not done too much reading on this, but it's like, I think basically areas that are periphery to the Roman Empire and that regularly trade with the Roman Empire begin to resemble very early proto-states because they need certain institutions in place in order to facilitate trade. So there are... There That's are sort of Dan Carlin's thesis about the ghouls, isn't it? So it's like, yeah, it's like oppidums um, or oppida, which are, they aren't towns, you know, these, Northwest Europe is not urbanised, um, but you get these areas which are sort of like towns and it's in these specific areas that proto money is being exchanged because this is the center of trade between Romans and uh, these Northwest Europeans, these uh, these Celts and Gauls. But, but the Romans the further you encourage out, you, that, do they? Well, it's the merchants that go first, as, as with oh, most things. Oh, because that is exactly, that is the same evolutionary imperial practice of the British Empire. Yeah. That is exact. That's how Britain ends up in India, in China, in the Caribbean. It is this, especially China and Japan. It's, the merchants go in first. They try and wheel the society to its own. I think the difference, and when they meet challenges, that's when the, the, glove, the gloved fist of empire comes in to maintain peace. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I, I no, I think you're I think you're right there. And because if you're I mean the Roman Empire is slightly slightly different. Because if you're reading about um Julius Caesar, R.I.P. Uh <laughs> Rip Jules. Rip Rip Taken King, from us too soon. <laughs> Rip King Jules. You know, a man who died over 70 years ago. Uh <laughs> At least. <laughs> at least, at least. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's, um, so in his conquests of Gaul, 
uh, it's sort of, it's presented by him as like, this isn't something I'm meant to do. This is something that was thrust upon me. And I, you know, I rose and met, rose to the challenge. Uh, And as part of that narrative, he talks about Roman merchants deep in Gaul getting rounded up and butchered. Uh, by some local chieftain for for some so for some reason or other, and then him as the governor of the the closest Roman province gets his army together, marches over and conquers someone, and says, "Well, there you go, merchants are safe now," and suddenly the Roman Empire is slightly bigger. But that if if that was it, that you know you're ignoring the the vast tracts of Roman history where it's very clear that political office in the Roman Empire, if you want to go anywhere in the world, involves conquering something making yourself incredibly rich and developing a personal relationship with your army and that's that is the the late roman republic in a nutshell and it's how you know the the romans sort of especially by polybius polybius presents the growth of the roman empire you know them fighting carthage and then conquering carthage uh fighting macedon and conquering macedon uh liberating the Greeks and humongous air quotes again, and then uh, fighting Antiochus in the, in the East, going into Egypt, going into Spain, all these different things are presented as, you know, the, the Romans are very robust and they like to, people like bringing in the Romans as mediators. And then eventually they take over the situation and a, their hand is forced and they have to conquer these people. And so Which they is- end up with this empire by accident. But that's leaving out all the motivating factors within Roman politics that say if you're a general, you need to go, go conquer something. Yeah. Go conquer I mean, something. what I'm sort of trying to round it out because we're sort of getting to the hour line. But... Yeah, I know. We've sort of we've really gone on on this. Yeah. I mean, it, there's so much just to quote to quote the great Al Murray, much like the Second World War, empires are like onions. There's always another layer. layer to peel away and see. And it doesn't treat me. At some point, we will have to have a long discussion about this. You know, what I really talk about. Does talking about accidental imperialism let empires off? Yeah. But it's because I think this, we, we've quite clearly got into this. Peace is just such a difficult concept in context of empires because they're just incapable of it. They don't know how, they can't deliver it because they're so dependent on violence to sustain themselves. And it is interesting the ways in which they build their politics to allow for that peace and empire, peace and war crossbound to hit each other. Yeah. So yeah, um, so I think we're doing we're gonna do round off. Um we haven't had enough time really to address this thing that's both fucked both of us off this week, which is a crazy yank lady who's um who, who longs for for Cymru? Longs for Cymru. It's just gonna play to Cardiff. Just go. Just get the train. No, it's, it's still there, lady. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's. I would really love to have a discussion about imperial identity at some point. Diaspora communities and diaspora communities. I mean, I. Oh. <laughs> that's a little that's a, that, that, that's an onion with a grenade in the middle. <laughs> but um, I think instead. Because uh, I don't, we're going to be here for another half an hour if we talk about that. Um, should we talk, talk about some about books? The books. Um, and You'll I go first. Bought, I bought a primary source, which Ooh. is "Taxation No Tyranny" by Samuel Johnson. Oh my goodness! So about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, we 
and a friend of ours went to the Johnson Museum, which if you're in London, it's his house. <laughs> it's his house. It's actually you pay five quid for it. It's like oh, and it's a house, but it is really interesting because it is an incredibly well preserved Georgian building, and it's a wonderful collection of artifacts and information about Dr. Johnson's life and the people around him and the dictionary. Yeah, so many dictionaries in that building. But it's just a, it was just a very nice thing to do on a very sort of crisp February morning. Yes. Um, And I picked up while we were there a copy of Johnson's Taxation No Tyranny, an answer to the resolutions and address of the American Congress, which is essentially best described as Samuel Johnson going, no, you, to the American revolutionaries, but basically saying, you can't, your argument that your liberties have been restricted and oppressed by England is horseshit because you don't really believe in them anyway. The technical term. The technical term. What? Horseshit, yes. Horseshit. But he's essentially saying they don't really believe in them anyway. And it's such a interesting piece of imperial artifact, imperial literature, because the American Revolution is an anti-imperialist war by a nation that will then go on to late create a land empire in America in on the continent. Yeah. And it is being waged against imperial oppression and couched. And it's interesting because it's not couched, as, that's the point. It is not couched as a war against imperial, against an empire. It's it is couched as a war against, no, it's couched as a war against the righteous citizens of the society, against its corruptors. Oh, okay. Because a lot of American, at the time of before independence, the American patriots consider themselves to be patriotic Britons trying to create a more perfect form of English liberty. Okay. And that is their anti-imperialist argument. As it developed, they don't think that by the end. They don't really think that after the Declaration of Independence either. But Johnson's argument is that you can't claim to be the true patrons of English imperial of English liberty when you yourselves are more imperial and have less belief in liberty than we do. I mean, I don't entirely nice. agree with Johnson in some ways, but it's an interesting point. It's a provocative thing to, to. I presume is it a is it a speech he gave? It is no, it's a pamphlet. Okay. So they read like speeches, but they are. It's a diatribe. It is the 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 eighteenth century pamphlet is the is the equivalent of the is it's Samuel Johnson's Substack. Right. There's no right. real Fantastic. other way to describe what it is except Samuel Johnson's Substack. And you are on the mailing list. I am on the side. You go and buy his pamphlets, you're on Dr. Johnson's mailing list. Fantastic. Not put out much new stuff recently, I'll be honest. But Johnson, no, no, he got distracted with that dictionary thing, and then he sort of the Substack, the mailing list went quiet. I don't know. Subs- yeah, distracted by death. Um, so, <laughs> what are you um, reading? <laughs> I've got Pax Romana. Um, topical, topical. Which is very topical. It's very, very helpful for 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 our discussions today. Uh, War, peace, and conquest in the Roman world uh, by Adrian Goldsworthy. And Adrian Goldsworthy is probably my favourite um, popular historian of the Roman Empire. He's written so many things. So he wrote um, basically the authoritative go-to big biography of Caesar uh, called Caesar. Um, and then he's written similar biographies for Augustus, 
Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Uh, and then he's written about Roman generals, Roman warfare, uh, the Punic Wars. And so this book is is slightly different because it's it's tackling bigger things than uh, a biography. I know people say biography, historical biography is the lowest form of, of history. Um, so he's, uh, I know, can't controversial, but he's it's, it's um, just mean. That's it just is, mean. it is mean actually. But he's sort of, it feels like he's stepping out of his uh, comfort zone with this book a little bit because he's writing about, uh, you know, he's writing about warfare, but he's he's writing about the how the Roman Empire works, uh, what it means, what, what sort of what is war during this long period of Pax Romana, what counts as peace, uh, what you know, people talk about Roman society sort of flourishing and and really improving during the Pax Romana. And the book sort of goes into what exactly that is and what they mean and whether or not it's uh, a fair reflection of, uh, if that historical narrative is a fair reflection of what actually was happening and what is shown by the ancient sources and the uh, the archaeology as well. Hmm. Um, so, I yeah, no, it's a great book. I got it for £4 on Amazon. It's like super 10 out of 10. Di- yeah, I'd say even just value for money, 10 out of 10. I mean, it's just like, it's not, it's quite, it's not I think super. that cost you the same amount as this pamphlet. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a great book. That's yeah. that book. Yeah, it's a big recommendation. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Um, and thank you all for listening to us talk about Empire again for another hour. Um, once again, if you want to get in touch with us, find us at PAX Podcast. Podcast packs on Twitter. That's correct. Um, leave us good reviews on iTunes. Recommend us to your friends. If you happen to meet a Roman on the street, do not punch him. Otherwise, a legion will come and kill you. They're after you. They're after They're me. After they know what we've done. Uh, yeah, if you want to send us an email, we're at uh, paxhistorypod at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions or want to get in touch about something, you can, uh, you can do that there um, as well. And uh, yeah, I don't think you've got anything else to say. No more announcements. No more announcements. Um, thank you for listening again. Um, yeah. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.